On today's episode of the Launchpad Podcast, we're talking about the Rockets game against the Brooklyn Nets. KPJ, can he be a point guard in a in a backcourt with Jalen Green for the future? And we're having a debate on Paolo Bancaro versus Jabari Smith and which one fits better on the Rockets coming out of the 2022 NBA draft. So don't go anywhere. We're in for an exciting episode. Welcome into another episode of the Launchpad Podcast, presented by Clutch City Control Room, our new home. We are joined today, uh, very kindly, by our partner in crime at Clutch City Control Room, and as well as the host of Locked On Rockets, Jackson Gatlin. Some of you may know him, uh, some of you may not, but I guess I'd say most of y'all probably know him. So, Jackson, in case any of these people you know just woke up out of a coma, they've been cryogenically frozen, uh, any of that good stuff. Uh, let them know where they can find your stuff. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at JT Gatlin, of course, hosting Locked on Rockets, hosting Locked on NBA, soon to be hosting State of the Rockets with a good friend of both of these programs, uh, Roosh Williams, and then also uh, the founder of the newly revived Clutch City Control Room, which I'm really excited to have you guys be a part of and really excited to see what we're going to be able to do with this thing, man. A man of many titles. <laughs> Hey, man. Apparently. Maybe, we'll, maybe we'll get there one day. Maybe we'll have all the cool, fun titles one day. But for today, um, of course, you can find my stuff on Twitter at Don Knock. Uh, I'm also one of the people that runs the Clutch City Control account. So follow that one at Clutch CCR. Follow us on uh, YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube. Uh, that's very critical. We're trying to push to a thousand subscribers on YouTube. The faster we get there, um, the better for us and, you know, helps our content out. So we've had, I think we're up to almost 150 people subscribing so far, which is incredible. We want to thank every single one of y'all. And if you can't subscribe and watch on YouTube, still subscribe on Apple or Spotify. You know, that still helps, still gets our content out there and, you know, gives y'all some great Rockets content to listen to. So, Paolo, tell them they can find your stuff and then we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah, uh, y'all can find me at Paul Alves NBA. That's P A U L O A L V E S NBA. Everything I do from podcasts like this one to live shows on Twitter Spaces to articles will find itself linked on there. And Paolo will also find himself in Houston later on this week. So, <laughs> as we talked about many times, everyone's looking Three days. for that. Um, we're hosting a watch party Friday night with the Summit State of Mind guys. We're hosting a watch party. Or sorry, that watch party is at Urban South. It starts at 6.30 p.m. That's when the game starts. You can get there about an hour before and we'll be all set up. We're also hosting a watch party at the Atlanta Hawks game at halftime, section 113, the Corona Extra Bar. And then we're going to have a, a meetup after the game as well. We don't know where we're going to have that yet. Maybe out front, maybe in the, the bar as well. We'll see how many people we have and what the turn looks like. But um, stay on the lookout for all that stuff. And, you know, we're going to document a lot of Palace trip over here so y'all be in for that content as well but we did just come off a game we are recording right after the the Brooklyn Nets game this wasn't this was another game where the Rockets got down big and then they had their their fake comeback um you know the the pulse on Twitter really was that early on Kevin Porter Jr. was doing a little too much shooting a little too much um and we'll get to KPJ a little bit later on in the show but it really seemed like Today, KPJ and Jalen showed up, and they had you know thirty and thirty six points uh, between 
between the two guys. Shingun had 14, and you really didn't get a lot out of, you know, pretty much anyone else on this this squad. I think the bench points ended up with 15. They had four bench points coming into the half, 15 fast break points, and man, it just it's just not great looking at a lot of these stats. The one thing I will give the Rockets on this game is they did keep the turnovers down compared to some of the other games they've been in. 11 turnovers um, as a team, not as bad as, you know, things have been going um, individually. KPJ with three and Josh Christopher with three as well. Uh, I'd say not a banner night from Josh Christopher. He shot two of 11 and one of five from three. Missed four free throws. So, you know, coming off of a career high, not what you want to see from him, but – uh, Jackson, we're going to go to you first here. What is your immediate takeaways from this game? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to win this game for obvious reasons. You know, the Nets, we have their pick, all those factors. Um, you know, what are your, your initial takeaways from this game and how everyone played? Initial takeaway is the Orlando Magic won and the Houston Rockets now control their fate <laughs> as far as a, a bottom seed this season. If they want to truly bottom out, lose these last couple games, then they can walk away no going no further down in this year's NBA draft than a number five overall pick, which would just be so incredible. No, but from the actual like game at hand here, and I know we'll get into a bit of the more, you know, large large standing debate about kpj and kind of just the philosophy around him and all that but i think that just the discussion around kpj really kind of bothered me in this game specifically now there's one thing like it's okay to me to be critical of kpj right like uh, of his play style like of you know how he's getting his buckets you know whether or not he's getting his other teammates involved like that's one thing right like you know i've been heavily critical of kpj roosh has been heavily critical of kpj at times like plenty of people have been critical of kpj throughout the season as he's you know kind of adapting to this mold but what i saw especially like in my mentions on on twitter during this game and, and you know after this game was just people who were completely dismissing Kevin Porter Jr. as a selfish player, as somebody who is who is out there just clearly trying to get his own, something like that, trying to basically really painting him in a in a negative light. And to me, that just isn't the case whatsoever. Like you can argue the differences between KPJ, like, you know, trying to find his own buckets versus getting his teammates involved. Like, that's fine. Argue that point all the live long day. But what I take exception to is when people are out there trying to paint him as a selfish basketball player, that is simply just not the case. KPJ would be ecstatic if he could walk away every single game with like five points and like 15 assists. Like it wouldn't matter. KPJ is one of the most unselfish guys on this Rockets roster. The problem at hand is that the Rockets in this game couldn't hit water if they fell out of a damn boat. Nobody could get the ball in the bucket apart from Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green. And so for a lot of this game, you saw not even really two-man game between those two guys. You just saw a lot of, you know, kind of your turn, my turn, let's attack the Nets defense because that's how they play defensively. The Nets switch everything. And what does that do? It flattens out your offense and it forces you into a lot of one-on-one -on -one scenarios. And thankfully, the Rockets have two incredibly dynamic guards in Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green who kind of thrive in those one-on-one -on -one scenarios if you're not going to send help and if the rotations are going to be weak, which let's face it, Brooklyn Nets defense is like Swiss, Swiss cheese. You can get through it easily. So that's where a lot of my frustration from this game came from is fans who were just completely trashing KPJ for absolutely no good reason. When he very clearly was one of the Rockets, two best players on the court. I know we're going to get into the bigger debate about what his true fit looks like alongside Jalen green moving forward. Do you need to have, you know, that floor general esque point guard on the floor, you know, across, uh, you know, alongside Jalen green, we'll get to that. I'm sure in a second, but that's where some of my, you know, initial takeaways from this game kind of stem from.
Yeah, I made the comment like at halftime that KPJ is on pace for like 28 shots, and he ended up with 26, but, you know, it's hard to really fault him when he shot 50% from the field, 42% from three. I mean, the free throws, he was 66%, but it was four of six. So, you know, he hits one more, and that free throw percentage is looking good as well. Um, so hard to fault him, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying in terms of it seemed like KPJ came out and knew that, we're playing against Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. One of these guys is going to go off. Like, let's be honest here. These are two of the best scorers. Honestly, two of the best scorers the game has ever seen. Like, you're going to have to put up offense. This isn't a team where it's like, hey, we're going to really come out here and shut these guys down and, you know, have them score like 75 points. Like, like it's, you know, NBA back in the 90s. Like, that was never going to be this type of game. And it seemed like KPJ came out knowing that. And, you know, for me, there were a lot of people that were saying, you know, KPJ, bad basketball IQ taking all these, you know, contested shots, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think the counter to that is KBJ comes out saying, hey, we got to score. We got to keep up. And it's actually, you know, him taking on that challenge and taking on that responsibility of if someone doesn't put the ball in the hole, we are cooked. Like, we are not going to be able to make a big run to come back in this game. And, you know, they ended up making a little bit of a run. They made the the usual Rockets fake comeback as we've come to know and love them. Um, but, you know, Paolo, what do you think – you know, about that angle on it. What do you think about just the general takeaways of this game? I know you're a big Christopher guy. This was not a banner night for him. Um, we saw Garubo get, you know, 11 minutes of playing time, almost 12. That's that's pretty good. And, and I think oh, another thing if you want to touch on is there was a lot of K.J. Martin versus Jay Sean Tate. Uh, who needs to start? What are we doing with these guys moving forward? So if you want to touch on that, feel free to go ahead as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, to me, this game, big picture. Uh, if you if you ask me what I wanted out of this game, I wanted either a win coupled with uh, the the Cavs winning and the Hawks winning and the Hornets winning, or a loss coupled with the Magic winning against the Cavs. Right. So we got a loss and the Magic beat the Cavs. So now we only depend on ourselves to get a, a guaranteed top five pick. So that's the biggest takeaway. Second biggest takeaway, I would have wanted Jalen to keep up his 30-point scoring streak. He did so. He did so efficiently. Scored a uh, shot 40% from three. Cool. So, first, two big points that we that I wanted out of this game, we got it. And then, about the KPJ debate. We, we're, we'll get deeper into it, but this game, I really didn't have much of a problem with it because nobody could hit anything. Like, nobody else is scoring other than him and Tillon. And you can't expect him to take just 10 shots and have Tillon take 40. So he knew, like he knew, he had to get, to get something going. So I really don't, I don't really blame him. And and then again, the the main takeaway I take from it isn't really that they went into Isabel. The, the what I take away from it is, well, so that's not switching everything. You've got to pick and have an hierarchy on which mismatches do you want to punish, right? Because. I'll be honest with you, one of the things that triggered me the most in this game, as you, as you alluded to, was why are we feeding uh, uh Tate, who's an undersized when he's switched on to Bruce Brown? Like, that's not a mismatch. Like, we did that like two, three times this game. We, like, we need our, our players to realize that there needs to be an hierarchy, and not everything's a mismatch. We saw this with Christian Wood, like, when he was playing. Christian Wood on random 3 and D wing in the post is not a mismatch because Christian Wood is not a power player. He's not going to power through. The, the wing's length is going to to be enough for him to defend him. So <laughs> those were my two biggest takeaways. Like when you get a switch and Jalen or KPJ is on a pick, that's the mismatch you should attack. You should not be 
giving the ball to the post, unless it's Alperen Sengun, who is probably the only good post player on the team. I mean, I guess KPJ, if there isn't a mismatch and he's playing against a smaller guard, he can punish in the post pretty well, I would say, even though we don't go to it um, too much. But 90% of the time, K1 Green or KPJ on a power forward or a center is the better is the better mismatch. Like they're two really quick cards, really crafty. They're going to blow by them. So please stop having like I have this this image engraved in my mind of Kevin Green with Nick Claxton isoing. And then you have like two you have KD who's guarding Keishan Tate and you have someone else near the basket because instead of giving Jalen all of the, the space that he had that he, that he can have to drive to the bucket and pull Claxton. We have Deshaun Tate on the other end of the floor. Like, <laughs> what are we really doing? You know, Th- those are those are the were the main things that triggered me this game. But then, just looking at as I said in the beginning, look at at the the overall feel and the overall like we what we came out of this game with. I don't think we could have asked for much more. No, I, I definitely agree with with both of y'all said about. We got the lottery odds on our side. We control our own destiny. I think that not that this game doesn't matter. Um, every game matters in terms of putting tape out there and you know developing as players. Um, you know, I was a big, I was a big advocate of even like the garbage time minutes and stuff like that. So I, you know, I really value all the reps and stuff that they can get. But at the end of the day, you know, in four years, when whoever we draft and Jalen Green and if Kevin Ford Jr. is still here are putting up 20 a pop per game, we're not going to think about this one game against Brooklyn. So, um, you know, I just advise everyone just don't dwell on this game. Um, I think, I think we're going to see it's tough because we're not in the spaces right now. Usually we have the advantage of being in the spaces and knowing what the dialogue is, you know, right away. Um, but we'll, we'll get on that. We'll get on that, you know, moving forward, but Hopefully, coming out of this, there's not just people going at Tate and KBJ left and right, because I think we are going to see some of that. Um, But I think that's going to do it for our first segment. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what we kind of briefed on earlier, KBJ as a point guard, what that's going to look like moving forward. Uh, Structurally, uh, kind of some little X's and O's, kind of preview about, you know, how the team can mesh with him as a point guard. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And we're back. So we're going to move into a debate that I think honestly is going to go up to the moment we draft, if not the first selection that we have in the draft, the second selection. Uh, And that is what is, is KPJ in terms of, is he, you know, just KPJ? Is he a traditional point guard? Is he a scoring wing? And how does that fit with the people that we are going to draft? So uh, I want to start out with laying out something that I believe in this discussion. Um, And then we'll go to Paolo first because we went to Jackson first last time. I have personally come to feel over the last week of just very intense, very, very polarized KPJ dialogue, especially in a lot of the group chats we're in. Obviously, not everyone has access to those group chats, so I'm going to kind of, you know, lay out a little bit of what happened. But um, to me, it feels like there's still this, there's still this hangover. 
from having Chris Paul and James Harden. And when we had those guys, it was like, hey, you know, you have this traditional guy in Chris Paul or you had this, you know, ultra super combo guard in James Harden where, you know, those are two of the highest basketball QI IQ players to basically ever play the game, right? James Harden basically, you know, you can say he, he took tough shots. You can say sometimes he should have shot more. But most of the time, James Harden's coming down and making the right play. And same thing with Chris Paul. You know, this guy, an incredible handle, incredible basketball IQ. He's coming down. He's making the right play every time. And I think a lot of people have, like, a yearning for that. Or they really see things as, like, this is the way to maximize guard play, and that's how it should be done. And a lot of times people are coming in and saying, hey, you know, we need we need a traditional point guard so we can, you know, set everyone up and, and do all those things. And I think that the way that a lot of NBA models are going, you have a lot more teams that have playmaking being done more as a platoon than having a big heliocentric player, unless you have a LeBron or a Luka. And, you know, the Lakers have LeBron and they're not even in the play-in right now. So that model may, it may just be hard to sustain. We obviously saw how hard it was to sustain, even with James Harden by himself in the, prime in the playoffs because you just get run down right if you don't have some sort of duplicative or, or multiple levels of playmaking and people to do that playmaking um i think that makes you it's easier to game plan for because you know if we stop this one guy what is anyone else going to do um and then also makes it so that if they can wear that guy down the way we saw a lot of teams do then and it makes it harder for the other team or for the rest of the team to to step up so i just kind of wanted to outline that um as like a preface to this We'll see where y'all want to take it from there. But I think for me, you know, having KPJ not necessarily as a traditional point guard or even as like a James Harden style combo guard, I don't think that that means that he doesn't have a role in the team. And whether people want to say, you know, he's a wing, I think that's an understandable perspective as well. But having someone like Alperin Shingun on the team that can handle a lot of the shot creation and playmaking out of the post or out of the top of the key or out of DHO situations, I think that lets you have multiple playmakers where you don't have to have such a heliocentric model. And that's how you can really unlock KPJ uh, and not have him be that traditional point guard. So that's my perspective on it. Paolo, let's go over to you next. Surprisingly enough, and for one of the few times since we did the father, I completely disagree. Um, and, and so this is going to be interesting. So that can be true. But if you look at most uh, contenders right now, there is very few that don't have a guy like that. Now, that guy doesn't have to be the point guard. It can be a wing. It can be Jokic, a center. It just has to be someone who knows how to control the tempo of the game and who knows how to get people into sets, even if he's not lead ball handling. So can KPK be that guy? I'm not sure. Um, I I would argue that, (laughs) tying into our next segment, Banquero is someone like someone like Banquero is someone who can who can control the tempo or someone who no th- is... I'm calling I'm calling party foul you can't you can't somehow shoehorn Banquero into segments yeah. no no it's no so I, like this is no this is no no, I, no, no. I, I am offended okay, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll use a different example okay, okay. so use a different example we'll, we'll get to Banquero when we get to him no but what I mean is the type of player that will he's gonna will... say Ballo Banquero instead that's what he's gonna say <laughs> who will coordinate the team and who will tell people where to go and who will uh, ha- like have the pacing and, and have the like know how to balance uh, the team. That being said, even if you wanted to run something like what Don was saying, where it's it's like 
playmaking by platoon. I think that those were the words that he said that he used. Even if you wanted that, that is not the system that Steven Salas is, that Steven Salas runs. Steven Salas likes a lead playmaker like he had with Luca and like he's using KPJ now, who's going to bring the ball up the floor most of the time, and who, and that's going to be the main engine of the team. Uh, in every iteration that we saw um, of this year's Rockets, this is what's been happening. If <laughs> we've complained that Jalen Green doesn't have, doesn't like get on ball touches enough, well, it's because the offense is designed for KPJ to do everything, and 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 so from that standpoint, that's when you need to criticize him and need to realize, okay, is this the guy that can play this role? And and, and then you got to realize, okay, is this the system that we want to run? Because we can say that. Kellen has some playmaking chops. Sengun has some playmaking chops. Even Tayshan Tate, mostly last season, had some playmaking chops. We could run we could use this argument. It's just not how the team plays. It's not like it's like we have Alper and Sengun starting and we are not seeing your Jokic like run the offense through the post much. Um and I and I'm not even blaming Salas for it. I'm just saying for the sake of the argument. It's it's tough to uh, try to imagine how that would look because we just haven't seen it, and until we see we see that that play out, we can't really argue that KPJ is the point guard of the future because of that, right? So, and and as a disclaimer, this is not Salas' fault because as he said himself, he's not going to implement major changes to how the team plays mid-season. That's something that he does in the off-season. That's completely legitimate. Just for the sake of the argument, I don't think it makes sense to view it that way. And, I mean, my personal opinion on KPJ is, regardless of the talent, I don't think he, he has it in him. He can develop it, but I don't think he has it in him to be that, get people into sets, to be that constant force at, at the point cut position, even if his shot's not falling, to be consistently getting people into sets, pacing the game, doing all that. That He can develop that. That being said, another concern is, he is very unstable unstable emotionally and we've seen this he said scuffles with the team he said i think three major episodes this season the one where he didn't want to come out the game the one in denver and i'm not really sure but i think there was one other episode like this so for him at least in my opinion he came into the team at a time where the rockets had no young talent besides KJ Martin. You could argue Christian Wood was part of that young core. You could argue Jason Tates was part of the young core. But generally, not too much high-end, high-potential talent. So he made sense as a gamble back then. At this point, the Rockets are stacked with talent, right? You have four rookies. You have what you, you have KPJ. You have KJ Martin. You're going to add two more picks. So the Rockets are no longer starving to talent for talent in the, to the same extent. So... The risk you're running with KPJ and the, the 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 time you're putting into him made more sense back then than it does now. That being said, I also don't defend that you should trade him mostly because he doesn't have much trade value because of the risks involved. You should not cut him, <laughs> God forbid. You, my sense is he has one more year and he needs to buy next year any issues and showing enough promise where to where you believe he can be the guy for the point guard position. I don't think a decision has to be made right now. I don't think one will be made unless the Rockets land at four and have to decide. And Ivy is like, the, the top three bigs are gone and you have to decide between Ivy, AJ Griffin, and, and Sharp. Unless that happens, 
I don't think they need to make a decision now. I think you take it next year. You don't extend him because his floor is so low that if he doesn't work out, it's possible that he's out of the league because of his 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 issues with his attitude. So you don't extend him now, even if an extension could potentially make you look like a genius. The only way I can see an extension working is if you make a certain amount of the years completely non-guaranteed where the team maybe takes a cap hit for two or three years and then and then uh, I guess if he takes a low enough uh, like average salary per year that could make sense um, but yeah in my opinion you give him one more year you don't extend him you let him hit restricted free agency and you make a decision then as far as long as you don't draft a guy like Jaden Ivy. <laughs> I think that's it for me. <laughs> you, I, you got, you got some bars off. That's for sure. But there's, there are some areas that I do like completely agree with you on Paolo. And I'm like right there with you. Like they're not going to extend him this summer. It makes zero sense to do that, to knock it out. Unless on the off chance, you maybe get like a really team friendly deal on an extension. It, you know, if that's the case, then maybe they do kind of, check out those talks and kind of see what, what he thinks he's worth, what his agent kind of is fighting for that kind of situation. Cause if you can lock him down on a, you know, relatively team friendly deal where then maybe down the line, even if he doesn't pan out, right. He completely hits rock bottom and he's just not panning out whatsoever due to that attitude stuff, whatever just doesn't fit with the rockets team. Then maybe he's at least like, you know, trade material. If he's got like a mid tier level salary to aggregate in a trade or something that said, I, I feel like the extension is probably off the table at this point. But one area that I want to push back on, I don't think that, like, I, while I do think that the, this entire season has been predicated on the idea of learning what the Rockets have with KPJ and making it an emphasis to put the ball in his hands and to let him, you know, grow into this role as the point guard, I absolutely think that's been the case. I don't think that Steven Silas's vision or philosophy for the team is like a heliocentric offense with a ball-dominant player. In fact, I think this entire season has demonstrated the exact opposite of that point. He wants his team on a nightly basis to be a team where everybody is getting, you know, spread equal touches where all guys feel like some level of involvement within the offense, which is why we've bickered for the better part of this entire season that there is no like clear cut hierarchy within the Rockets offense because one night. Christian Wood walks away as like the seemingly number one option guy. One night it'll be EG. One night it's KPJ. One night it's Jalen Green. And it's not necessarily flowing within the sense of like, oh, well, this person has it going, so they're taking the most shots. It just kind of happens randomly. Like it randomly happens where Christian Wood will be the guy getting up the most shots, even though he's like two of 10 from the floor or something. He just keeps getting the shots up. Or just like Jay Sean Tate keeps driving the lane and keeps, you know, trying to find mismatches on guys that aren't actually mismatches for him, right? And so... I think there's just a, a very distinct lack of a hierarchy within the offense. And some of that is compounded by the fact that yes, KPJ is also learning the reins at point and has been for the entire season, but I don't necessarily want to put that on Kevin Porter jr. Because I do think that in the games where you've removed some of the other variables, right? You've removed Christian Wood, Eric Gordon, Dennis Schroeder. There's been a bit more of a consensus. All right. Jalen and KPJ are your first and second options, right? And I do think that there's not necessarily an issue in KPJ's mind to defer to Jalen Green, where I do have a bit of an exception from, from this game specifically against the Brooklyn Nets is KPJ as the point guard needs to do a better job of getting his, his guy, Jalen Green, involved in the offense, right? Jalen Green went seven minutes without attempting a shot in this game. Didn't get his first shot attempt to almost five minutes left in the first quarter. And then went on an absolute like bananas tear, scored like 14 points in about a five minute window, basically. And yeah. 
it, it, when that happened, right, you kind of saw like, okay, like KPJ kind of hit the bench and then Jalen Green kind of started to have his little takeover. The Rockets got back into the game and then Jalen Green hit the bench and the Nets went on like a 14 to four run and never really relinquished the lead after that. But with KPJ, that's kind of the area where I think, okay, like he was, you know, kind of surveying what the Nets were doing defensively and he felt like it was in his best interest to just attack, right? Be in an aggressive attack mode and wasn't necessarily, you know, actively sourcing, trying to get other people involved. And that can't necessarily, or I should say that can be the case when it comes to maybe the other guys on the roster who are, you know, more so more or less role players, but the guys who are the other, the talent on the team around him, right? So in this case, just Jalen Green in the starting lineup, that's where you want to see KPJ be a bit more involved as like the guy setting the table for the rest of the Rockets offense, right? Calling some sets where Jalen can get, you know, maybe an Iverson cut going towards the basket or something and, and get an easy, easy shot attempt or call a set to where Jalen's going to get a wide open corner three pointer, right? Where he pulls the defense in on the strong side and Jalen's, you know, planted on the weak side to get an easy bucket, things like that. And I do think that when you look at KPJ, he has all the tools and all the talent to absolutely be the type of guard, be the type of playmaker, you know, who can control the pace of the game because we have seen him have some games this season where he has effectively controlled the pace, right? Slowed things down when they need to be slowed down, sped things up when the Rockets needed to move fast, different areas like that. Is he perfect at it yet? No, but I do think that when you look at just how young he is, unless you have like a generational type talent who just rolls into the game and is like a basketball savant and just gets it like a Luka Doncic, like a LeBron James, like a James Harden, who let's face it, even with James Harden, right? He kind of had to develop that skill over time. James Harden didn't roll into the NBA with the ability to be a one-man heliocentric offense and completely dictate everything that happened on a basketball floor, you know, at any, at, at any given moment. He developed that skill over time. Who's to say that KPJ can't subsequently develop that skill as well when he has all the tools, all the all the requisite tools in place to be able to do those things, right? He's got the playmaking. He's got the vision. He's got the shooting. He's got the creation ability. He's a dynamic player. All of that is there. And I just don't think that one season is enough where Rockets fans seemingly live and die on a game-by-game -game basis as to how well KPJ is playing. And I'm like, it's this is... This is something that you can't just condense into one season, right? This is going to be something where it's going to need a little bit more time to coalesce. And I do think if you look at where he was at to start the season and where he's at now, you have to walk away incredibly encouraged about the idea of him and the pairing with him and Jalen Green long-term, or at least at the very least for next season. And I want to just mention one thing real quick. Like, you know, Paolo, like when you started your your – segment there or your your call, call it a diatribe that's what it was yeah, a rant a rant i don't want to be disrespectful um but yeah you were kind of talking about how like you know the teams that have or contenders kind of have like maybe not a point guard but they have like a jumbo creator and stuff like that and you know i don't know how you feel about these pairings but we have you know the paul george Kawhi leonard pairing and then we have the kevin durant Kyrie pairing and both of those pairings are really just like wing scorers and i don't feel like a jalen green kpj pairing is that far out of line than those two now a lot of people have said the clippers have had issues you know not having a point guard exactly uh, hang on i, I let, let me let me play devil's advocate here because i'm going to throw in one more pairing that clearly never had enough success and that's damian lillard and cj mccollum like that's that's the other right that's the floor is what you're looking at is you're looking at yeah. two guys who arguably very dynamic guards who can get it done offensively sure but without like a true 
pace creator, playmaker, somebody who can, you know, dictate the flow of the game, which I don't think when you look at Dame yeah. and you look at CJ, neither of them really dictate the pace or the flow of the game effectively like a Chris Paul or like a LeBron or like a Luka does. So that's where some of that concern does stem from, I think. But I think when yeah. you look at Jalen and KPJ, both of those guys show flashes where they are arguably more dynamic than CJ and Dame to a degree in just their entire play style, their entire package of what they can do. We've seen the playmaking chops from Jalen already. So I think there's more of a hope that that backcourt dynamic could be a little bit more akin to, you know, the ceiling of like a PG Kawhi situation where even then KPJ and Jalen have way more playmaking than PG and Kawhi do already at their current yeah. level. And they, they're not going to go anywhere else, but up from here. Um, oh, sorry, I mean, sorry. I'll finish my point real quick. But yeah, um, so for me, having those pairings and in, including the the Portland one as well, I think I think the Clippers had decent roster construction. The Nets have, you know, we'll see what it looks like when Ben Simmons gets back. But I think they have, you know, a little bit um, when healthy, better roster construction than even the Clippers had. But the Portland example specifically, I think that one they gambled on a lot of wings that they needed to really hit on. I mean, Al Farouk Aminu, Robert Covington didn't do a lot for them there. And they, they had a couple of other guys. Uh, Mo Harkless uh, didn't do a lot when he was out there. Um, so I think, yeah, Rodney Hood. I think the Portland example specifically, they made some gambles. They made some draft selections that just didn't pan out for them. They drafted Zach Collins, and he ended up really not panning out for them either. So I, I think putting some better pieces around that Portland example – could have made them more competitive. Now, do I think that they would have gotten to Golden State in its prime or even the, the level that the Rockets were at? No, probably not. Um, but they would have been a little bit closer. And that, that Rockets team and that Golden State team, those were really all-time level teams. I mean, the Rockets didn't, up, didn't end up winning in 17 and 18, but that team was on pace for, you know, 60, 70 wins when James Harden, Chris Paul, and Clint Capella were all healthy. So I, I think those are all very good examples, though, of, you know, two wings that aren't necessarily, we said the, the Paul jo or the, the LeBron, the Chris Pauls, the Lucas even. Um, so yeah, go ahead and, and react to that. Paul, and we'll finish the, the segment out. Yeah. About that. I mean, most of the teams you listed are teams that didn't, didn't get it done. And when you think about it, I mean, well, another example. I, I, I would also list the Warriors as a team that never really had a, a traditional point guard, to be honest. Obviously they had, you know, Draymond? overpowered, I mean, it's no, Dray 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 you, you, but you roll, you, you definitely include Draymond and, and even, I think, you know, as much as it sucks to give the man his props, um, Steph Curry doesn't get enough credit for his ability to play make like Steph Curry, you know, people think that he's just a shooter. Like Steph can dictate what an offense does absolutely by leveraging his gravity as a shooter, as well as what he does with the ball in his hands. Like Steph knows when to slow things down, when to speed things up, when to get the ball to certain guys. Like Steph is as much responsible for how that Warriors offense flows as Draymond is. But like Paolo, I think, was getting ready to basically point out, is there's Draymond Green there. He, he falls under that umbrella of the guys that Paolo was listing off earlier, right? Guys who can impact and control the flow of a game that don't necessarily have to be your point guard, right? You just got to have one of those guys somewhere yeah. on the floor. And that's kind of like the argument that, you know, I think maybe some Rockets fans were making earlier this season is you look at KPJ and Jalen Green, and they're both incredibly dynamic players, but do either one of them have the chops to be that guy when it comes to controlling the overall, you know, putting their stamp on the game essentially. And I think maybe that Alperin Shingun had possibly has the ability to be that guy kind of yeah. anchoring and being the fulcrum for the Rockets offense for stretches. 
And it kind of goes into what you had suggested, right, Don, with kind of the uh, playmaking by committee, essentially. And if you do have two dynamic guards and a big who can, you know, be the focal point of your offense where you're running a lot of your actions through him and he's kind of the, the decision maker on the floor, then you're looking at a kind of a la Golden State Warriors-esque offensive scheme or maybe a Denver Nuggets-esque yeah. offensive scheme yeah. where you don't have to have that like floor general point guard out there putting everybody in their spots because it can come from any position on the floor. Yeah. Right. And another example of, of what we're saying, the Boston Celtics are, are a team that constantly, year after year, people say, yeah. get them a point guard. We talked about the John Wall for Kemba swap at some points. We talked about the John Wall for Al Horford swap at some points. All of these teams seem, seem to fall short or, or get cold. And when they get cold, there's like when Brown and Tatum are cold, the Celtics don't run. So it's most of these teams eventually go through some some points where people say this they need uh not a true point guard but they, they need a like a pace setter i'll call it i'll call it like that that's i mean that's what a lot of where the the kpj stuff comes from if you move kpj to the three or draft a three that has these capabilities now we don't need him to do that and he can focus on being the kpj that he was this game where his focus was let me get my let me get mine and he was really good at it um I think also I'm not sure like having that person be your center if they're if they're not like a like a, a Draymond where they're really good defensively, it's also tough because if you're not a Jokic level center, if you are a Sabonis level center, does it still work? Like can, is it worth it to have your center be that position if he has liability on defense? Like it's a, it's a tough balance to strike. And then um, going back to what Jackson said earlier about South and the offense, I would say that it's looked like there is no hierarchy besides KPJ. I think at the top is like, ideally KPJ is always bringing the ball up the floor. And I think that was the case for most of the season. And when like, and then, the offense, like, you have times where whoever gets 20 shots up, I'm not talking about the amount of shots that, that, that go up because that also depends on on the, how the defense is playing you. Like, if they're leaving Deshante open 10 times, he's going to take 10 threes, you know, or he's going to drive into five guys in the lane 10 times. Um, but from that perspective, it's not about how many shots they take. It's about, like, who is responsible for the playmaking and who is responsible for setting the offense in motion is has always been KPJ the entire season. Other than certain bench units where or or the off possession where Eric Gordon uh, is kind of doing that or or off possessions where Cristiano decides to bring the ball up the floor, but that doesn't really feel like it's by design. Usually, when those guys are bringing the ball up, it's because they either caught the rebound and they're just pushing it because push the pace is the main priority. But when it it is like half-court offense, it's always KBJ. Until very recently, where Jalen has gotten some of those reps. I mean, we complained all season that Jalen Green was being used like the Tim Hardaway Jr. of the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, when they had two bigs, uh, Nathan Fogg, shout out to him, pointed out time, time after time after time that this is the exact same offense Dallas runs with Porzingis and Dwight Powell back the year prior, right? So that's, that's what I mean, like, Ideally, Salas likes, at least for most of the season, like to have always the same guy bringing the ball up the floor, always the same guy getting people into sets. And that guy was KPJ. I think, I think when we had those hierarchy debates, 
it was more about who's getting the shots up and 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 the the philosophy for for that for most of the season was well who's getting shots up is who the defense lets getting get start, get shots up right they were really uh willing to pass the ball and have whoever take the shots uh um i'll take christian wood out of that out of that group of people that are really willing to pass the ball and let others take shots but yeah I, that was more the, the like not from the honor shots but the people that are getting the offense into the sets. That's mostly what I meant. All right. I think that's going to do it for us for the KPJ as a point guard debate. You know, we made a lot of good points there. I don't think we really reached a conclusion. And honestly, I don't think a conclusion will be reached on this until the Rockets end up drafting someone. So I'm comfortable stopping there. I'm sure this issue will come up again. Uh, Who knows? Maybe even on Thursday. So uh, We've got a long off season. <laughs> we do, and there will be a lot of draft talk in the off season, so don't worry about that. Because when we come back, we're going to have these guys duke it out over, you know, Paolo number two and Jabari Smith. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And continuing on to our last segment here with. Clutch the control room founder and you know good buddy of ours who we're gonna hang out with in a couple of days. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm breaking fourth ball here. I'm I'm going real relaxed here. This should be a fun. Try to keep it light because this may get contentious. Um, you know, one person is very clearly in the Paolo camp. We may even call him Double Paolo here. Uh, Paolo squared. There you go. And then we have someone who's in the Jabari camp. Both his name starts with J. Jabari starts with J as well. So, you know, these guys are obviously dug in just based on the alliteration of it. Just call um, me Jabari Gatlin. That's what we're going to go with. Okay, there you go. You get new nicknames here all the time. Um, but in all seriousness, we're going to go first to you, Paolo. You have had this debate. Like you oh, said, he got the, he got to go first last segment. I thought that's I, I thought we like alternated okay, back. Okay. But no, that, it's that fine. No, it's, it's, it's fine. It, no, 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 okay. it's fine. He can he can go first, but because okay. then I I don't mind having to counter his points. That's fine. Um, his perfectly wrong points. But uh, I for all Ooh, of our YouTube okay. viewers, uh, you can see that my name is now Jabari Gatlin on the uh, on the YouTube thumbnail. So this man is such a veteran. He needed just to do that. All right. So Yo, Don, Don, change me to Paolo Alves, please. All right, I got I'll, you. I'll, I'll, no, I did not just say this. Wow, no. he butchered his own name. No. You heard it here first. This will not be getting taken out. We are leaving that. Oh. We're going to put that, uh, gonna no. put that and post that as a as a tweet no. for this. But all right, here we go. With that oh, said, Paolo, Paolo squared. Paolo squared. What you got? Paolo Come squared. On. What do you have? For oh us? no. Paolo, like Paolo, is an Italian name. That's why I messed my own name up. Cut down. Um, but yeah, <laughs> back up to what actually matters. To me, it's really up to this. Um, there's two main arguments, and from that you can subtract or, or you can divide it into whatever arguments you want to. You want Don to was make. promised there would be no math, so we can't do any division. It's in my contract. <laughs> it is in my contract. So, basically, first argument is I look at the top three, and the guy I see having the most straight, like the most easy, achievable route to becoming a star to me is Paolo. So in that sense, regardless of fit, the Rockets should go for the guy who has the easiest math path to being a star. And because we are the worst team in the league, in my opinion, I love Shangun, uh, but the only guy you should let affect who you draft is Jalen Green. 
And when you think about what Paulo brings and his IQ passing the ball, and, and like he's just such a fundamentally such a good player on offense that you can just imagine a guy like Kylian Green who is constantly relocating off the ball, who is constantly like running around. He's quite up, like quite literally the opposite. Kylian is quite up, literally the opposite of what Duke ran the entire season. And I've been making the argument for a while that Duke's offense is exactly the opposite of, of what Paulo needed. And and so it just that's just a dynamic pairing. And, and it's a pairing where it's not going to be your turn, my turn. That's one of the, it's really special when you get to have a duo of potential stars where they fit together at the same time on the court seamlessly on offense. It's not KV and Kyrie where you take one turn isoing and then the other guy takes one turn isoing. It's not like that. And you can say that this is true about anybody that plays with Jalen just because Jalen is so dynamic off the ball. But Paulo has the IQ and has what I said KPK lacks, the skill to be a leader and to direct people on offense and get people into sets. And and then has the IQ and the playmaking to once they get into those sets and he's executing to find someone like Jalen. So yeah, for, I guess I'll since we were going to go back and forth a little bit, I won't like use all of the arguments. My main first argument is he has the most clear cut path to being a star. And I'm not even like, and there's not there's honestly nothing for me to debate there as far as because I, I do think that when you look at Paolo, he is the guy out of the four at the top of the draft, the, the can, kind of consensus more or less top four talents. He's the guy that is more than likely going to be like, you know, multiple time, like NBA all-star, like really like good, solid top end player, all of that. However, I also don't see necessarily, and this is maybe this is the area where we kind of differ, right? Is I don't see his, you know, imprint the control of the game right the 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 playmaking i see it and i do think that at times he is you know maybe arguably an often like underrated playmaker that that said i think you and i have different visions about how that playmaking is going to translate at the next level i don't necessarily know if he's going to be like the guy who's like shouldering the burden of running the offense 24 seven, right. Where you give him the ball and he's going to be able to create for everybody on the floor and, you know, be that dynamic, you know, scoring option because I, I look at him and I see the, I see the floor or maybe argument like the basement as like a, you know, a Julius Randall, Blake Griffin type of player. And maybe that's a, again, maybe that's a disservice to Palo and that's which, fine. Which era of Blake Griffin? Cause I, I got into this a little bit as well. They, some people pick different versions of Blake Griffin. I've kind of said, I, I do think that because he's a bit of an underrated playmaker, I've kind of gone with the comp of like the Blake Griffin who had to like pick up his outside shooting and his playmaking that one season that Chris Paul missed a significant chunk of time. And we kind of saw Blake like start to evolve as a player. Yeah. So like, if that's like yeah. your floor as a player, that's like a pretty strong floor to start with. Like I get it. Like, and I get the appeal. I get the excitement. However, I also, and and while still walking away, because you know, the, the first argument should always be, you know, best player available. And I even have to kind of counter my own logic at times with these top four, because we're just going strictly off like who we think the best player available is and who we think has the absolute, like, you know, most top in possible talent to turn into like a franchise altering piece. It's got to be Chet Holmgren. And I think, Paolo, you probably agree with me, right? Because Chet Holmgren has all the school, all the skill sets, all the tools to be potentially that next like unicorn type player that we're like not going to see again for like another 20 years, right? Because no, we've never seen his combination of size, defensive impact, and then the offensive ability all rolled into one player. There's just concerns about his ability to actually like, I don't know, survive 
at the NBA level with his build. And so if we're just going off based off that, you'd have to pick Chet, which is why I have to almost like refute some of my own logic here because while I do agree that Chet has like that insane, you know, superstar or whatever potential, I look at like just what, how slim the chance is for him to like potentially actually hit that window. And so then that's where we get into the argument of like floor versus ceiling in some of these players. And I do think that when you look at these guys, the two guys with the most clear-cut highest floors are Paolo and Jabari Smith because they're both already so adept at what they do. And then you consider how much more room for improvement they have in their respective games. And when you look at the skill set that Jabari Smith provides, the hyper-shooting, the defense, the rebounding, three skills that he's already arguably elite at. And then the only area of his game where you argue a little bit like, okay, here's where there's some, you know, flat red flags, right? Where you're a little bit concerned is right. The ability to kind of create for himself, the ability to maybe, you know, be a slasher off the ball, the ability to, you know, create separation and get his own shots off. But at a, you know, at a six ten size, you know, getting his own shots off, shooting over the tops of defenders is something that I think he's going to be able to do. We've kind of seen him do it a little bit, not necessarily as much as one would hope for a potential like number one overall pick. But that said, I do think that like part of where this argument like almost boils down to is you're talking about like the guy who has the most potential to be like a superstar, right? Which is why you're looking at Paolo, his skill set, and you're like, okay, here's an argument. Would you consider Clay Thompson a superstar? So I kind of would. It's, because look, it's a tough argument, right? Because Clay has never been given the opportunity to like be the num- the true number one on a team, right? Like the like I've always wondered what it would look like. Like back when there were like, you know, rumors, debates, like is the big three in Golden State gonna break up? Who would they choose between Clay and Dre? Like who would they ship out if they had to, if they didn't want to pay all three stars? And I was kind of entertained by the possibility of like, yeah, just ship Clay off to a team and just see what he could do, right? Uh, you know, see how much damage Clay Thompson could do as the true number one option on a team. A guy with that skill set just being told, you know what, unleashed. Just get 25, 30 shots a game. You're the guy. We've got a point guard here to kind of get you set up. You can still be you. You can still run off picks, you know, all, all game. Get your, get, your, get your laps in on your Fitbit, whatever. You know, I look at Jabari and I see a guy who isn't necessarily going to be like the, you put the ball in his hands and he's going to like completely take over a game that way. But if you give me a guy who's going to play all NBA caliber defense, impact the game with his defense and his rebounding, and then completely change the dynamic of a game offensively where on any given night he can give you 30-plus on extremely elite efficiency just by standing in spots on the floor and draining threes repeatedly left and right. He doesn't even need to be able to create his own shot at that point, especially, and to your point, the only guy that you should take into account when you're arguing about like where this Rockets team is going to be with this next draft pick is Jalen Green. I will kind of back away from some of my rule, and we'll factor Jalen Green into this you know, dilemma here. Jalen is dynamic with the ball in his hands. And yes, he's shown a proclivity and and an ability to operate without the ball and to move around without the basketball. But I don't think that means you turn him into an off-ball player. I think it means that he has shown an ability to not be stationary and not be like James Harden with cement shoes in the middle of a game where he refuses to do anything other than sit at the top of the key and wait for the ball to get kicked back out to him. That's been an absolute bonus as far as this season is concerned. That said, you keep the ball in Jalen Green's hands and you give him an elite hyper-shooting wing like a Jabari Smith, somebody who's going to drain you know, a, a realistically a good amount of the wide open shots he's going to get playing alongside Jalen Green. And then that duo is a walking, you know, 
20, 25 plus a night, just those two based on how well they're going to work in tandem in conjunction with one another. You're talking about Paolo and, and Jalen working well one, with one another, with Paolo being the guy having the ball in his hands. I want to see Jalen Jabari work well with one another, with Jalen being the guy with the ball in his hands and, and Jabari being the one setting screens, popping, rolling if he needs to right? Creating opportunities that way because the defense has to honor his shooting. You put him in the action, Jalen Green's going to get wide open lanes to the bucket every single time. Or Jabari's going to walk away with wide open shots. It's a win-win. Right. Um, so, first thing, the thing about Jabari is, at the NBA level, everybody's going to overplay his jump shot. Just because he cannot put the ball on the floor. He cannot attack a closeout effectively. He will not punish you if you are playing right up in his face every single time. If not just because of the handle, because he is shocking finishing at the rim. He is shooting 42% from three and 43% from the field. Like that's, uh, that's pretty insane. That's some of the gap that he has in relation to Clay Thompson is Clay can put the ball on the floor. Clay has some craft around the rim. Like, Clay can Clay can do those things, and then the argument is, what's more likely to happen? <laughs> Look at this like it's two K. Is it more likely, and it's not actually attributes, but is it more likely that Powell, who is a seventies across the board, to become a ninety at two three things, to develop two or three skills that he already has, but make them elite, or is it more likely that Jabari, a guy who has 80s or 85s across the board, but then has two 20s at two fundamental parts of the game. And then, and then, what's more like that? Paul becomes elite at something he's already good at, or that Tebari, who was already elite at so much, so much stuff, becomes even above average or, or too good because we probably need to be good to be a star at the two things that he cannot do at all. And then the um, the other thing is. We don't know if he's finishing at the rim is like a skill or like Nathan Fogg usually says, lack of lift. He is not the most athletic guy. He got that dunk off. I know, I know. He got a dunk off, whatever. He is not, like, he's not going to hang in the air and have acrobatic finishes. He has not shown, usually these types of forwards, when they can do that, they like, they have really good game, like, uh, bouncing the, ba- the ball off the backboard high to to get those. Kind of the way Deja Knicks likes to finish, um, usually that's something that happens. And then the thing about Jalen, having Paolo doesn't mean Jalen has to be off the ball at all times. You don't need to run the offense through Paolo at all times. I'll present to you something that you'll probably be surprised by. Did you know that Paolo is statistically a better off-ball player at catch and shooting and cutting than Chet Holmgren is, who's shooting 39% from three, while Paolo is shooting 34 so, like, um, that's, I would say that's pretty surprising. So, Paul is not a vacuum of the ball. He's not James Harden. He will set screens. He will, he is a lob threat. He will um, cut. He will, like, spot up and he can hit his shots when spotting up. So, from that standpoint, you, in an NBA team nowadays, you need to sometimes three guys who can do who can be options on the ball just because at any time in the NBA nowadays there's one or two super teams so you need to be able to face off against some of, against one of those so Paul won't get 100% on ball reps Jalen will have plenty of on ball reps at the same time uh, it's the thing I would argue against Jabari is 
you got Leon on the ball and you've got Jabari off the ball, right? You're going to need someone else because those like you're you're eventually going to need another player that's going to play on the ball because even though Leon's really good at it, and I didn't and even though Leon is really good at it, I don't think you can rely on him. I mean you might be able to in the future, but I don't think if you rely solely on one player to do all that work. And, and yeah, I think one of the common misconceptions is drafting Paolo does not mean that Cleon Green becomes an off-ball player again like he was early in the season. You, it's just not how NBA teams work. There's way too many touches for that to happen. Oh, I, I, I have one more thing. You got uh, one more. I go one more. Well, Jackson thinks he's pointing through. If, like, I think it's a lot easier to have Paolo and Jalen and recruit a guy like Jabari. I think there's more Jabaris in the league than there is Paolo's. So I think if you have Paolo and Jalen, you're going to have, and if they become as good as we think they are, you're going to have role players taking pay cuts to join the team, like, a lot. So you, had a, you are a team with a lot of assets if they pan out, like, assuming they pan out. The argument to me against Paolo, and that's pretty valid, and I think it's a close debate, I will be ecstatic with any of the top three. So disclaimer right now, I'll be really happy if you get, if you, if you could lock me into Jabari right now before the lottery, I would take it immediately. I have Paolo number one, but it's not that big of a difference. Um, I think, as I, as I was going to say, it's easier to find a Jabari or 80% of what Jabari does in a Robert Covington type than it is to find what Paolo does. To me, what's, uh, and playing a little bit of Devil's Advocate, to me, what's comforting about Jabari is you're guaranteed to have a player that will be able to play a role in a winning basketball team. I don't, you said earlier that you think Jabari and Paolo have the um, highest floors. I think Jabari has clearly the highest floor. I think Paolo has the lowest floor of the three because just because of his archetype, he either pans out. If he doesn't pan out, then you're looking at it like if he doesn't pan out, you're looking, it's just how the NBA works. Like if you're a scoring option, you need to be efficient. If you're not efficient, you're you're a lot quicker out of the league than, than, than you think. Like a lot of scorers ended up like being bench pieces just because they weren't efficient enough or they weren't good enough on defense. So I think Seth has that minimal risk that his body doesn't hold up. Besides that, I think Paulo has the has the lower has the lower the lower floor. I think a good example of this is Cole Anthony, who you could say, oh, this guy has potential to be a star, but right now he's not efficient. So if he doesn't become efficient enough, he's a six foot two guard who can't play any defense, whose only skill, if he isn't if he isn't going to be efficient enough, is playmaking and and, and somewhat rebounding. So that, from that standpoint, I think that's what pushes people against Paul. I think that's a, a, really, a really valid argument is how much do you believe in the potential of him hitting his ceiling? And my argument against that is players who have the tools and are really smart, and I think Paulo qualifies for both. He's 6'10", 250 pounds. I think he could even swim a little bit uh, going to the NBA and become a little bit more mobile. He's a really smart player. He has one of the best assists to usage ratios in college. When you have those two skills, I think you're pretty much guaranteed to be good. I think Kevin is the prime example of that. You know, they, these are these are very compelling arguments. I, I I'll I'll be completely upfront with you. It still hasn't swayed my opinion. It's 
And, I, and again, very similar to, to you is I, I want to, you know, readdress the point that I'm not going to walk away upset with any of these picks. Like I'm not, I'm not upset at the idea of, of Paolo on the Rockets. I'm just more intrigued by the idea of Jabari and he's why, you know, he's, that's why he's number one on my board ultimately. And when looking at, you know, the different top four guys and what they could potentially all kind of conceivably bring to the, you know, at the NBA level, that's why I have Paolo the lowest, just because I, I am more excited by and intrigued by the possibilities with the other guys and, and how their games and skill sets will ultimately play out, you know, in the, in the years to come at the NBA level. But I think ultimately when you come away with what Jabari has in the way of, and, and it's, it's so weird to just boil this down to this one thing, but there is a distinction between, right. Cause you're talking about like getting, you know, 80% of what Jabari does in like a Robert Covington type. And ultimately, like, I think that's a bit of a disservice to what Jabari brings to the table with his shooting, because it's not like, that isn't something that's just like commonly found, right? Like this is a guy who's shooting over 40% from the arc with regularity on good volume, good attempts. Like that is, there are maybe five guys in the league who can like re, re like, realistically and consistently put up those types of numbers. And so immediately you're putting him in very elite company as far as something that you're going to have a weapon at your disposal in your offensive repertoire or whatever, mixing and matching him across any variation of lineups. Like he can play with ease alongside anybody, right? Alongside a Jalen, alongside an Alpi, alongside a Kevin Porter Jr. You slot him in because he doesn't need the basketball to be effective and to impact the game on both sides of the floor. And that's where I do think I come away with thinking that even if there, even if there's areas where Paolo can still impact the game offensively without the ball in his hands, he can still set screens. He can still crash the glass. He's still going to you know, be a spot up shooter. I look at Jabari as a guy who's going to, without necessitating the ball at all, other than just, you know, being the, you know, the finisher on an offensive play and getting the final shot up, right? He's the, he's the play finisher, not the play starter. He can impact both sides of the basketball at an already elite level with the shooting offensively and then with the defense and the rebounding on the other end. And you can't say the same for Paolo. Like Paolo's not an elite defender because you have the tools to potentially become a, a solid level, like NBA level defender, Pro possibly, right? You mentioned the IQ and stuff. And I, I think that a player with that level of IQ, with the physical gifts that he has, I think he's going to get to a play place where he's, you know, at least a passable level defender. That said, Jabari's already shown a lot of you know a lot of ability on that side of the basketball so you're not necessarily you're not gambling on that you know that you're going to get a guy who is arguably going to be vying for you know all nba honor or all nba defensive team honors you know a couple years into his career probably somebody who can guard realistically like maybe even i, I hate the terminology guarding one through five because nobody can like really guard one through five but somebody who's a very switchy defender who has the physical gifts and the skill set and the wherewithal the iq the physical frame the, you know, again, 6'10 size, the seven foot something wingspan, like all these physical gifts that he has. So that's the defensive package. And then again, offensively, you're talking about a guy who on any given night could give you 20 plus, 30 plus on very efficient shooting without having to dictate having the ball in his hands, right? And it's really hard to walk away from that enticing of a player just because he might not be able to like put the ball on the floor and take a couple bounces. And I will push back on one of your earlier points about him. I do think that even though defenders are going to close out, they're going to close out really hard on him at the NBA level. And I think that a guy with his shooting touch is going to be able to develop a very simple counter to that, which is simply just taking that one little like sidestep dribble or like that, that quick fake and then dribble into the three point line and just take a long two. Nece not necessarily the most efficient type of offense if he's getting run off the three point line like that. But if he is like, a very capable shooter. And I, I would feel very comfortable at him or with him taking that shot. I don't have the numbers right now in front of me, but a guy who can shoot that well from beyond the three point line 
I'd be very okay with him taking one step in as like his counter in his bag to defenders running him off the three-point line and just stepping into a long two. And so I don't think he's going to get like neutralized at the NBA level just because opposing teams are going to run him off the three-point line. And that said, it just becomes down to, again, you know, take the quick, smart dribble inside. Nobody need you know, just because he's being run off the three-point line doesn't mean he has to then get to the rim and finish at the cup. He can take those mid-range shots. He can take a couple dribbles towards the rim and then make the next right pass as the rotations are happening. Because guys who have that level of gravity with their shooting make things happen offensively. Because suddenly that's somebody that you cannot leave open. You can't rot rotate off of. You can't. You have to accommodate for him at all times because he is a walking bucket from behind the three-point line. So you give that type of guy to a Jalen Green who is going to have all the gravity in the world around him already. We're already seeing the level of playmaking that he has, the way that he impacts the game, and is able to create for his teammates at such a high level. But then you're replacing a Jay Sean Tate or a KJ Martin or an Alperin Shingun who is sometimes struggling from three, isn't very consistent yet. You're replacing guys who are taking those shots right now in the Rockets offense with a guy who's going to be hitting those at an above 40% clip. Right. My only, my only counter to that is... What if defenses just stay on him? Like you, you mentioned, well, he's getting closed out on. Just take a step into the three-point line and take the long mid-range shot. Well, if he's not going to cut, if he's gonna be, not going to be an efficient finisher at the rim, teams don't have to be afraid of him moving off the ball. That's another thing that he doesn't really do for, for Auburn. And another thing that he doesn't really do, he is not a polished passer at all. Like he... He... I, 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 I will just say, as far as moving off the ball, I think it's much easier at the NBA level than the college level to become That's true. a player that moves off the ball more effectively. And again, when you factor in that gravity of his shooting, any any halfway competent NBA coach is going to be like, all right, hey, guess what, Jabari? You're going to just run baseline routes all game. You're going to make your defender drag back and forth on the baseline, and eventually they're going to lose you, and you're going to get a wide open three. Like, just simple cuts, simple routes to where he's going. And, and then, again, like, if you if we can see – if we can see a guy like Garrison Matthews realize how defenses are overplaying him offensively because of his shooting and suddenly develop the ability to cut back door and get to the rim and have some easy backdoor opportunities just because he realizes that defenses are playing him all the way out past the three-point line at times, same thing's going to happen for Jabari. There's no way that you can sit here and tell me that Jabari's not going to be able to figure yeah. it out if, de if defenders are chasing him two and three feet behind the three-point line because he's that much of a threat to shoot the basketball. And then all he has to do is a quick little shimmy shake and – dive hard back towards the rim and at a 610 frame like unless you're unless you're rotating a Rudy Gobert in front of him like or another legitimate so, big man to drop in front of him right at the cup like he's going to get his fair share of wide open opportunities off of his shooting gravity alone right i i get what you mean and that's that's part of the reason why if i could lock in Jabari right now for this team i would right away uh i can see the merits and and one of one of the things i would push back on is we are treating him as this off-ball player, and this is projecting. And I'm not. I'm not going to use this as an argument against it. But usually, it's not that simple. Usually, players aren't willing to just be that guy. And his ability, with his current skill set at the NBA level, to get 25 to 30 points on any given night, will heavily be dependent on what opportunities he gets. And 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 a, a guy that's dependent on what the defense does to get his to get his is. It's, it's tough to pick that in the top three, but this is a weak draft, so I can definitely like I, I can it's I can definitely see the the like what what the draws, merit 
yeah, the merit in 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 Jabari, and I think it's also part of. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Paulo's documentary, but he touches on something that I think it's from the people I've discussed with. It's pretty common. Jabari is a really pleasing player where you can put him in a certain archetype, and you're like, okay, he's guaranteed to be this, and he, and these are really valuable players in the league. And I agree with you. My argument that you can get eighty percent of what Jabari does in free agency, it was wrong because. It is correct. Like a McCall Bridge is, is not the same thing as Robert Covington. It's very different to be elite at the two things rather than be elite at one thing and learn to do the other. Um, but I think a player like that, like at least for me as well, like it's really easy to put him in a box and be like, okay, he's going to be this and he's going to be really good. The thing about Paul is he's so good at so much different stuff that people and and while not being elite enough or, or dominant enough or even in my opinion, being given the chance to be that at the college level, because that's just not how Duke runs. That's going to scare away a lot of people because there's a lot of players like that that don't make it, be, and because they don't have that archetype to fall back onto, they fail. Uh, but I think when we are a team this bad, you should be swinging for those players that you can put in a box that have that that like they're so good at so much stuff that that's the making of the star, of a star. Like very rarely do we have stars who are not a base level of really like really good at pretty much everything they're elite, elite at some at some things but i just yes I, I guess at the end of the day i just can't convince myself that a team this bad should be kind of i'm not going to call it settling because that makes it feel like it's not a good player it's a really good player but i think the team this bad should be always swinging for Defenses, and I think Paulo is the swing. Which is defenses. why Chet Holmgren is the number one <laughs> overall pick for your you Houston know, Rockets. Because you know, that, my friend, is the fence. That is the that is the tallest fence right. ever that you'd be swinging for with Chet. And the, another concept. John, I know, I know, we're running really long, but another concept that I, that I really like to find out is. Chet has the highest. Uh, this guy's caps. waving me off like Jabari's point guard yes. to wave him off in. Uh, yes. In that last Auburn game. So. This cat has the best absolute highest ceiling, but like his 100% ceiling is the highest. But if you look at his 90% ceiling or his 80% ceiling, that's what's actually achievable. Like, we never like even KD is not the 100% ceiling of what he could be. He could be a better rebounder with the size, he could be a better defender with his tools. The 90% ceiling, which is what you people usually talk about with ceiling for Chet, for me is not someone who can do it all and be like this, like the prototypical unicorn. For me, something what what Chet's like ceiling is at the ninety percent level is, <laughs> to be simplistic about it, a Rudy Gobert that can shoot threes, and that's a really valuable player at the NBA level, right? I I, I that's why I say I say Paulo is why I like Paulo better. Like that's a really good NBA level player. Like, but to reach that ceiling, still, to me, it's just so hard because Gobert is so is so good. Uh, but that's that's what I mean. Like, Gabari uh, Chet has the best absolute ceiling. But when you look at what's actually reachable there, I don't think there's there's a like. I don't think he. I don't think his ceiling is the highest. I, I would classify Paulo's ceiling as the highest. Chet's as the second highest and, and Jabari as the third highest. And then when you look at floor, I would do the exact opposite. I think uh, Jabari has the highest ceiling. Chet has the second highest ceiling. Uh, 
and Paulo has the lowest ceiling. Just as I said, scorers in the NBA, you're either efficient or you're probably not an NBA player. Sorry. Um, with that said, we've ran long on time. Uh, Don said, Don said, ding, 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 boxing gloves off. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, I was going to drop a WrestleMania reference, but uh, I, I do not recall most of it from uh, this last weekend for uh, various reasons. But um, we'll leave that one alone. That's going to do it for us this time. Um, we'll be back Thursday. Uh, Paul, recording Thursday, Paul will be out Friday. Uh, again, I want to thank everyone that subscribed to the YouTube channel. Y'all are incredible. I want to thank everyone that listened uh, to the first Paul we put out on CCR, CCCR, sorry, I should say on um apple and spotify as well the numbers have looked really good so far since the move just as good as when we were at our last place so i want to thank everyone that transitioned with us y'all are awesome y'all are incredible thank you for joining us as we we move into the next phase of our journey here jackson tell the people where they can find your stuff one more time and all your titles I'm like one of those old timey dukes that's just in charge of like a million things. No, um, on Twitter at JT Gatlin, of course, uh, you know, shout out like Don said to everybody who's uh, supporting the uh, revival of Clutch City Control Room. There may be some people who were around for the first iteration of it uh, way back during the bubble days for the Houston Rockets, which, you know, very early pandemic. Like, it's kind of crazy to think about how this thing came full circle. But yeah. You know, it's very exciting to see where we're at now, the things that we're doing, the the plans that we have for content moving forward into this NBA offseason, uh, the way that we've hit the ground running with the YouTube content already making, you know, shows available on YouTube, the plans that we have, all this stuff moving forward. So definitely uh, be sure to follow along there. And then obviously, you know, check me out my five-day-week Rockets show over at Locked on Rockets, Locked on NBAs on Monday, and uh, soon to come around the corner uh, rocket or state of the rockets, I should say, with uh, the infamous Roosh Williams, and uh, that's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, Roosh and I just wanted a platform to get into some more long form debate and discussion about you know the goings on of the team. So, content train does not stop over here, it absolutely does not. And one of the content horses that uh, help fuel that train, Paolo Alves, go ahead. I know how to say your last name. Unfortunately, you do not any longer. Uh, but go ahead and tell the people they can find your work as well. And we gotta find gotta find a better word than horses because horses are the mavericks, right? And we can have that. Um, but yeah, y'all can find me on Twitter at PaulAlvesNBA. That's P-A-U-L-O-A-L-V-E-S-N-B-A. Everything I do from podcasts like this one to uh, live shows on Twitter Spaces to articles about the Rockets will find itself linked down there. And you can follow me at Don Knock on Twitter. You can follow the pod at Clutch City CR on Twitter. And if you want to find the YouTube page, the podcast on Apple, the podcast on Spotify, go to the bio there. The link tree is there. Everything is right there. You don't need to have a bunch of links. Go to the bio. Go to the link tree. There you go. So that's going to do it for us this time. Until next time, everyone, be safe and go Rockets.